And if you're an elementary age kid, you can go down to MH Kids. So 2,000 years ago, about 120 Christ followers who had no money, no power, uh, they had no internet, not even a printing press, started a movement, and that movement grew to 6 million in under 200 years. It spread like wildfire. Not long after that, the Roman Empire made Christianity the official religion of, of the entire empire. And this all started with a bunch of ordinary people, fishermen, tax collectors. Again, no power, no prestige, no internet. And they did it in just a couple of centuries. How'd they do it? How did they do it? We don't have to act. You know, we don't have to wonder how they did it. We can read Acts. That's how they did it. So far, we've looked at a, an Acts 1-8 mission and an Acts 2-42 community. We've looked at these practices of, of being a witness to the gospel and the power of the Spirit. We see that in Acts 1-8. And then in Acts 42, we see how they did community, these simple practices that were things like devoting themselves to prayer, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which we said was... Uh, pointing to the reality of corporate worship together. Simple things, things we do, things we do. And for those things to m change lives and advance the gospel mission, uh, God has to show up. He has to show up. We might think of these sort of as kindling that need a spark, uh, it, need a f it needs a fire, right? Just, if you just have some kindling, that's nice. But it, it doesn't burn unless you actually have some kind of a, a source of, of, of fire. And so devoting ourselves to these things that we just actually devote, said we were devoting ourselves to in this covenant, these five things, is, one, is, is nice. But if God doesn't show up with fire, if He doesn't show up with His presence and His power, these, these things don't really have any life in them. They're merely empty containers. But as we look at the book of Acts, we see God showing up again and again and again and again. And so in the lives of these ordinary people doing these ordinary practices, God does these extraordinary things in his power. Now, the first time we really see him show up uh, in, in Acts is when we see the Spirit coming at Pentecost. And we see that the, the way that God manifests his showing up is that they're able to speak languages that they didn't even know five minutes ago. And so it's fairly impressive, right? But it's, it's, it's one-time thing, like this, this one moment, and the Holy Spirit reveals Himself in that moment, and the gospel's preached, and 3,000 people come to faith, and the church is off and running. But the church needs God to continue to show up. And so the next time we really see Him showing up is Acts chapter 3. And He shows up in a healing. We see Peter and John healing someone. And so the, the kind of the setting is that Peter and John are headed to the temple, and it's during the time of prayer. Uh, the Jews had set times during, during the day when they would pray. And in Jerusalem, you could actually walk to the temple, and you could pray at the temple. And so Peter and John, are that's what they're doing. They're walking to the temple with everyone else in the afternoon, 
and they're, they're going to have a, a, a prayer time. Maybe they're going to teach in the temple courts. It's, it's possible, even probable, that they were going to te- do some teaching uh, as well. And they're going through one of the gates, and they see someone who's begging for money. Uh, he is a paralyzed man. He's been paralyzed since he was born. And, you know, I, this guy's been strategically placed there. Religious people oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes will be generous people. Sometimes that's out of guilt. Sometimes that's out of some kind of actual obedience to God. But religious people tend to give, give away money. So he's strategically placed by the, the, the gate. They walk in and they see him and we get to see their interaction with this lame man. You just heard me read this, but I'll read another uh, portion of this again so you can see this. Acts 3, verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. So the first thing they do is they look at the man and they ask him to look at them. That's a pretty powerful moment. Most of the people, most likely, are trying not to look at the man. You and I do this, right? We're, we're, we're driving somewhere. There's someone with a cardboard sign asking for money. The tendency is to just look somewhere else. Like, I don't want to think about what that person's going through or why that person is doing what they're doing. I'd just rather listen to the radio and look the other Way, but that's not what Peter and John do. Here's this man who is marginalized. He, he's on the outside of society. Folks are walking by. Actually, they're thinking some theological thoughts that are incorrect, but what they're thinking is it's his own fault or it's his family's fault. This guy's being punished for some reason, for some sin. And so they're, 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 they're uh, most likely looking, looking the other way. And here, Peter and John lean in. And they say, hey, look, look at us. Now, where did they learn that? They learned that from Jesus. You see Jesus do this over and over and over again in the Gospels. Some of my favorites are when he is interacting with a leper. And what does he do? He touches them. And he touches them before he heals them. Nobody wanted to look at a leper. Nobody definitely didn't want to touch a leper. And he would lean in and move toward someone who was absolutely marginalized on the outside of society. And he would touch them. And they, wa- they watched Jesus do that over and over and over and over again. And so they, they do it too. And they lean in and they look at this guy and they, and they make sure that he is looking back at them. Now, he says to them, Peter says to them, rise up and walk. Now, he's, he's dealing with this guy's physical need. He, he, do, he doesn't start with, uh, you need Christ to be your Savior and your Lord. He doesn't say, you know, here's, here's some literature. <laughs> here's an invite to church. This guy can't walk. Right? He's, got, he's got need a presenting need. It's a physical need. And so they deal with the physical need. 
need? What, what, what have they seen that done? They, Jesus does this. He deals with what, 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 where people are hurting, where, where they're feeling their need, sometimes called a felt need. He'll engage them at that level. John chapter 5, he goes to this healing pool where there's several different people, different, different kinds of ailments, and he goes and talks to them and, and you know, has interactions with them. He finds this, this one that's been there probably the longest. He's been there 38 years trying to get a healing, and he engages this guy in conversation. Now, Jesus will eventually talk to him about his spiritual state, and he'll, he'll talk to him about sin and need for salvation. But in that moment, he deals with his physical need. Now, there's, there's, there's one problem, though, in this moment here is, is that Peter is not Jesus, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's one thing for Jesus to walk around and go, rise up and walk. And he does that, right? He goes, take up your mat and walk. That John 5 story I just mentioned. But Peter's not Jesus. So Peter talks a little differently than Jesus does. Jesus is like, rise up and walk. But, but Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's different. It's different. This is kingdom talk kingdom talk. Now he says, Jesus uh, Christ of Nazareth, kind of a long name. It's like, wow, Peter, why do you have to let's say all these names for Jesus? Why not just Jesus? Well, because he's communicating some things about the character and the nature of, of Jesus. So, so the name Jesus, Jesus actually means Yahweh saves. We're just saying Yahweh, the Old, the Old Testament name that was given uh, for God, uh, from God to Moses. And uh, so, so Yeshua, this idea of a Savior, right? Jesus. But then Christ means the anointed one. It was the word that was given to the Messianic king that the Jews were waiting for. And so not only is he a Savior, but he's a king. And then he adds, of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was like this backwater small town in Galilee. But he wanted to make sure they knew that the Jesus he was talking about, because there were other people named Jesus in that day. He wanted to make sure that they knew exactly the Jesus that, that he was talking about. And they knew who that Jesus was because they'd seen that Jesus, right? He's in Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus had taught, had ministered, ha, ha, had been killed. So, so they knew exactly who he was talking about. And so he says, I, I, I am saying rise up and walk, not in my own name, but in the name of the Savior King, right? Now, this is also kind of, co-opting some language in the Roman Empire. Because you would speak this way a, a, as, a, as a Roman. You would say, I'm coming under the banner of the emperor. I'm an ambassador of the emperor. I myself do not have power, but because I come in the name of the emperor, I have power, and whatever I say goes. And if you don't do what I say, I'm going to tell the emperor, and, and he's going to lay the smack down. Right? And so... Again, this language that Peter's using in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this is kingdom kinds of language. So he's saying, I'm coming in the name of Jesus. I'm coming in the authority of Jesus. I'm coming in, under the, uh, in, in obedience to Jesus. Right? I'm coming in the power of Jesus. Now, what it's not, it's not magic. It's not the use of like special words that somehow uh, kind of direct 
this nebulous divine power in a particular direction to do the thing that you want it to do. That's, that's magic, or sometimes what the Bible calls divination. Uh, Christ actually condemns this kind of usage of language. Matthew 6, verse 7, he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So there he's contrasting how pagans pray and how Christians pray. And he says, pagans are using words to try to direct the nebulous force to do the very thing that, that they're wanting the force to do. He's like, you don't do that as a Christian. As a Christian, you pray as a child to a father. You're in a relationship. You're not just trying to get some kind of release of power to help you have a better life. You're in a relationship as a child is to a father. This father is all loving. This father is all wise. And this father is all powerful. And so when we, we come to the father, we, we come in relationship, not as magicians who are trying to use some kind of verbiage to, to get God to do something, right? Now, one of my favorite stories in Acts uh, is about the sons of Sceva. And they found out what I'm, what I'm saying. Uh, they, they found it out the hard way. Um, this story from Acts 19 says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, okay, so they're driving out demons, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom it was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They were trying to use the name of Jesus as a magical incantation, basically. And they're saying, yeah, in the name of that Jesus that Paul preaches, I mean, we don't know him, we don't know who he is, we're just using the name. We want to drive out this demon. And the demon's like, what? Who are you? I know who Paul is, and I'm scared, but I don't know who you are. Right? This sort of magical usage of the name of Jesus is condemned in Scripture. Now, I fear that some Christians think of the name of Jesus like that. There are certain traditions, sometimes called word of faith or maybe a positive confession tradition, where they feel like if they say certain words in certain ways, they can manipulate God to do for them what they want. Or they're very fearful about saying certain words in certain ways that might cause negative things to happen to them. Uh, this is not biblical. This is no way to think in terms of how you relate to God. You relate to God as a child talking to a loving Father, words are merely an external way to express an internal reality. Peter, internally, by faith, was coming in the name of Christ. Right? Now, he was saying it out loud, but it revealed what was truly happening inside. He was not like the sons of Sceva. He wasn't just throwing around the name of Jesus as if it was some kind of uh, magical phrase. Now, Peter seems pretty full of faith. 
that King Jesus wants to heal in that moment. And so we see in verse 7, he took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. This had to be quite an experience for this paralyzed man, right? Peter's saying, rise and walk. But he doesn't wait for him to rise and walk. He grabs his hand. Get up. Let's go. Right? It's obviously, it's, it's Peter who has the faith, not the man. Right? And, and he's just grabbing his arm and he's just pulling him up in absolute certainty that, that Jesus in that moment is going to heal. And so leaping up, he stood, he began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping, praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them. The healing man is excited. His legs work. His legs have never worked. Not only does it do his legs now physically work, but he knows how to walk. Like he got to skip that whole like toddler stage where you're like trying to learn how to walk and you're like banging your head on the couch and the coffee table. Like he didn't have to do that. Like God restored him and, and he enabled him to walk and to leap and to, and to praise God. But there's more going on than, than even that, right? This, this man has not been able to go past that gate into the temple, into the place where he, he could be in the presence of God. He was considered unclean because he had a physical defect. There were many reasons that you could be considered unclean in the Old Testament. Birth defects, skin disease, bodily emissions, the touching of a dead body. Everyone at certain points in their life was considered unclean and could not go into the temple area. Some were considered unclean all the time because they had particular defects. Now he can go into the place of worship. So not only is he excited about his physical healing, he's excited about his spiritual healing, that he gets to go into the temple and be in the presence of God. This is not a generic miracle. This is dripping with theological significance. It's a very strategic thing that Jesus has done through Peter. One who was far away from God, one who was separated because of sin and its effects, is now able to go near to God. And the way he got near to God was not because he went to the physical therapist and he worked really, really, really hard and he got his legs strong again and he learned how to walk and finally he got to go in the temple. He's in there because of Jesus. Jesus has made him whole. Jesus has made him well such that he is now back into the presence of of God and able to go into the temple. Now, what happens next? What you might expect, right? People are, are excited about. People are excited about a healing, right? We read in verse 11, he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw, he, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our, our power, our piety, we have made him walk. This is a great moment, right? People are excited. They're thinking, well, maybe I can get a healing too. Right? We, we, we might ex expect Peter to become the, the, the next miracle crusade guy. Like, come on down to Peter's miracle crusade. But that's not what he does. He's like, why are you looking at me? Why are you looking at John? Especially John. I mean, come on. <laughs> Who's this guy? <laughs> 
this is not because of us. Like, look at us. We're just fishermen. Like, <laughs> what are you thinking? Right? And sure, Peter, I mean, I think he's a little tongue-in-cheek, right? Like, he understands why they are excited. And in the ancient world, physical ailments were even more of a burden than, than the modern world. I mean, they, they've got no health care. There's no medical science. You know, we get hurt, we get sick, we go to the doctor, we take a pill. We, there, there's all these options we have. Now, sometimes those options don't work, but we don't know that. Like, we think they're going to work. And, and, and so we have hope, and we keep living, and we keep moving ahead. But, but, but these folks don't even have a placebo effect, right? And so the, 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 there's nothing they, they can do except ask for a sovereign good God to, to do something physically in their life. And so they're, they're thinking, okay, this is my ticket out. I can have a physical healing. Now, Peter gets a big crowd around him. What are you doing to get a big crowd around you and you're Peter? You preach a sermon. I mean, come on. Of course. And, and he goes big, like in the opening line of the sermon. He says, the God of Abraham. That's big. That's about as big as you can go. With a whole bunch of uh, Jewish folks in the, in, the, in the Solomon's porch there right in front of the temple. This is the God of Abraham. He's letting them know this is not a sideshow. This is the main event. The God of Abraham, who you're going into that temple to worship, right? right at that moment, there's, there's priests in there, and, and, and they're sacrificing animals, and they're burning incense, and they're praying, and, and, and they're right there in, in, the, in the holy place. And everyone in Israel is thinking, that's where the most highly concentrated presence of God is. And if I want to get to God, I'm going to go to that, that very central place of the temple. And Peter's saying, no, 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 this right here is the, is the main event. And he says, the God of Abraham. And then he explains the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Do you hear that? Hear how he's tying together the arch of God's redemptive work throughout Israel. He talks about the, the patriarchs of Israel, and he says that, that that same God has glorified Jesus. He's made much of Jesus. And then he goes on to explain, whom you delivered over, denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we're witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, this man was made strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. He quickly goes Christ-centered. You see this in all the sermons in Acts. He talks about Christ. He lets them know about their sin. He doesn't skirt that. He, he doesn't not mention their sin. He goes right, right at it. And, and he says, remember, you gave him over to Pilate, right? You denied the chance to release him when Pilate said, hey, you can take Barabbas, and then I'll, I, I, won't, I won't crucify Jesus. He said, no, we want Jesus crucified. And he reminds them of that. Then he says, Jesus, you killed. Just flat out says, you killed him. And he, and, he, and he just is very forthright about their sin. And oh, by the way, he was the author of life. You see the irony of that? You killed the author 
of life. That's not smart. Like, you don't want to do that, right? Oh, by the way, he was holy and righteous. So here this one who was absolutely perfect, absolutely holy, absolutely righteous. You killed him. If anyone didn't deserve to die, it was him and you killed him, the author of life. And so, by the way, that guy that you handed over to Pilate, that you denied, that you killed, God raised him from the dead. Now, that could be good news, that could be bad news. (laughs) At this point in the sermon, I don't think they know. Like most movie plots, it's, it's like the, the, the humble, seemingly weak guy getting beat up on, kind of like Bruce Banner, right? And eventually he turns into Incredible Hulk. And then he gets back at all of his enemies. It feels a little bit like this in this moment in the sermon. It's like, uh-oh, we delivered him over, we denied him, we killed him. And then God raised him from the dead, and he's going to come get us, right? And Peter just lets that hang for a minute. And then he says, now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. That's a really gracious moment right there. It's, it, it, it's similar to Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. It's a real moment of grace and mercy. And he says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. So not only does he say, you were, you were ignorant, right? but, he, but he says, somehow through the actions of both your leaders and the angry mob, God was moving forward a plan. That plan had been spoken of by the prophets for ages and ages. God was carrying out a plan of redemption. And then he offers them the redemption. <laughs> the ones who had delivered over and denied and killed Jesus. It's a stunning moment of grace and mercy as Peter offers that. And, and look at the way that he describes it. Number one, he says, your sins can be blotted out. Blotted out. They don't have to be worked off. You don't have to get into some sort of a probation with God. And then after a few years, he goes, okay, now I'll blot them out. Now I will blot them out. You look at the Greek text, guess what it means? Blotted out. It really means it. In one fell swoop, if they believe in the Christ, the Savior King, their sins will be blotted out. The consequences of those sins, blotted out. It's the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That word in 14, uh, canceling, is that same Greek word for blotted out. Hear this good news. Hear this good news. That when you put your faith 
in the Savior King Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, your sins are blotted out. He also says that this is going to result in a refreshment. That God in the here and now is going to refresh you. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he's talking about the, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. That when you become a Christian and your sins are forgiven, God comes to dwell in you and you are converted. We were talking about conversion uh, this week uh, at one of the lunch tables that I was at on, on a campus and uh, some friends, uh, some, some, some Mercy Housers had brought a friend and they, this friend had a Muslim background and he was asking some questions and he said, tell me about conversion. What is conversion? And, and one of the students that was at the table who's a believer started talking about how God had changed him and how he experienced the word, and how he had walked away from sin, and how he had joy. And it was the refreshment that God had given him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter lets them know, not only are your sins going to be blotted out, but now, right now, here and now, you are going to be made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't just stop there. He says that that there's a, a complete restoration that's coming, that Christ is going to return. And, and this fallen world, which includes people being paralyzed, people, people's relationships be, being disintegrated, there being depression, there being the, the influence of the demonic, all, all these things that, this, that make up this world, those things are going to be reversed. Jesus is coming. And so those that, that place their faith in Christ not only have their sins blotted out, the, they are not only refreshed by His Spirit, but they are going to experience a restoration of the whole universe. There will be a new creation when Christ returns. That's a, that, that sermon is chock full. A few verses there. He goes over almost the, the, the entire implications of the Scripture. And why, how did this conversation come up it came up via a healing that happened and so what god has done in this moment he's demonstrated the gospel and then it's given peter a platform to then proclaim the gospel with power but what he's proclaiming is not everyone who's sick everyone who's hurt come come here and i'm going to heal you he's preaching the gospel so that they can be healed spiritually. So when Christians talk about healing and how healing works, you can think about it in these terms. I'm going to give you a little theological lesson here. Some of you, you're going to fall asleep and I'll wake you back up after this slide. Um, But some of you might appreciate this. So you can think about it this way. And I'm going to use this word eschatology, which is just a study of, of the last times, the end time, the judgment and salvation that come at the end time, right? And, and, and so Sometimes we end up having an underrealized eschatology where the, the end that's coming, the, the restoration that's coming, we, we don't really believe that it has any kind of presence now. And so we don't think Jesus can heal. We don't think he can do anything in the physical. Right? And that would be called an underrealized eschatology. And then there's others that become overrealized in their eschatology. And they think that, that, that all that restoration is going to happen now and that Everything's going to be healed, and every ache and pain that I have, I can trust that Jesus is going to totally change that in the now. And honestly, he's not going to do that in the now, but he is going to definitely do it in the not yet. 
And so if we have a realized eschatology where, where we absolutely, yes, believe that Jesus is present now and through the power of the Holy Spirit and that, yes, he can heal, he can do anything he wants in the power of the Spirit. But we don't expect that he's going to do everything that we want him to do in restoring the physical body, right? That, that he, he might choose in his sovereignty to say, I'm going to demonstrate my gospel by giving you power to suffer well. And that's up to him because he's King Jesus. And so we want to have this, this tension of a realized eschatology where we don't want to totally say he can't do anything, but we also want to realize, hey, we're in a fallen world and he's not going to totally restore it until he returns. And so we are in this now but not yet kind of attention. And ultimately, we are under the good kingship of Jesus. Just like we see Peter saying, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, under his rule and under his reign. In verse 22, Peter pulls out the next big prophet here, Moses. Again, going big. He says, Moses says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now he's quoting Moses. Before he talked about Abraham, now he's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 18, and he's saying Moses said there was going to be one that was going to come that was going to be like him, who's going to be a deliverer. Except he's not going to deliver you from Pharaoh in Egypt. He's going to deliver you from the consequences of your sin. If you didn't listen to Moses, back, back when Moses was delivering people from Egypt, you would end up staying in Egypt and being under Pharaoh. If you don't listen to the new deliverer, which is Jesus, your soul is going to be destroyed. That's what he's saying. And again, quoting Moses. Right? Huge, huge figure in Jewish history. And then he brings in all the prophets, all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and those who came after him. Proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets, the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So he finishes up with kind of a review. He's a good preacher. He goes back to what he said. He says it again. And he says that the, that the, the God of Abraham who has sent Jesus to you, is, is offering you an opportunity to turn away from your wickedness and turn toward Jesus as a Savior and King. Now, what do we, what do we draw from this? Now, I, I want us to draw an understanding of, of healing, for one. I want us to draw the how and the why of healing. The how of healing, it's in Jesus' name. Not as if Jesus' name is a magical phrase, Okay? But it's done under his rule and his reign as his ambassadors, right? Our understanding is not that we somehow can manipulate him to do something by saying particular words. That is paganism. That is not Christianity. And we, we don't want to treat God in that way. The why of healing to move the mission forward. The mission of making more and more mature disciples. Again, we see this done in this passage where Peter is most concerned about people hearing the gospel and responding in faith. 
He sees that healing as a demonstration of the gospel. Again, we said it's dripping with theological significance. They know that, Peter knows that, and he's using that as an opportunity to advance the gospel mission. This miracle is a reminder of our own spiritual paralysis. That's in part what Peter was preaching that day. That, that we were absolutely destitute spiritually. We, we had no way to rise up and walk. We were completely paralyzed. And Savior King Jesus was the only one who could make us alive, who could blot out our sin, who could bring us refreshment, who could bring a restoration, not only of us, but the entire universe. And it is through Savior King Jesus that you and I can rise up and walk. So perhaps you've never heard that message. Perhaps you hear God's Spirit through His Word this morning saying to you, rise up and walk. Rise up and walk. Trust in Christ, that He has blotted out your sins through His death on the cross, and that you are forgiven and that His Spirit can come and refresh you, and ultimately that Jesus will restore you and restore this world. If you believe that this morning for the first time, trust, trust in that. And then begin the walk. Sometimes we call the Christian walk, right? Rise up and walk because of your faith in what Christ has done for you this morning. Others of us, we've risen up and walked. And sometimes we forget that that was by grace. <laughs> sometimes we think, oh, I think I did a little spiritual, you know, a little spiritual therapy and I got a little stronger and I wobbled a bit and then I got, you know, to walking. And no, you didn't. You were paralyzed. Absolutely paralyzed. And, and because of your Savior King Jesus, He restored you and raised you up to walk by grace through faith. And guess how you continue that walk? By grace through faith. <laughs> I mean, honestly, ev every morning you open those eyes, you, you need God by the grace of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to say, rise up, walk. If you're, if you're actually going to live for Him and bear fruit for Him and make disciples for Him, the only way you can do that is by His divine power to rise up and walk. And we're, we're reminded of that every time we come to this table. Reminded what it costs Jesus to pay the price to give the remedy, to give the medicine that we needed to, to heal us of our spiritual paralysis. And so we remember that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you drink this, take this cup and remember that I have made a covenant with you by my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, remember this every time you drink it.
And again, he's, he's pointing to the remedy that the Savior King had to provide for people that are paralyzed like us to be able to rise up and walk. That's good news. That's good news. And so let's, let's celebrate that. Let's remember that. Let's observe this in a way that causes us to remember the blotting out of our sins, the refreshment that's been given to us in the power of the Spirit, the restoration that is to come, because I think that's indeed what He wanted us to do. And so let's pray, and then let's remember. God, thank You for Your Gospel. Thank You that You have caused us to rise up and walk, and, and in fact, for eternity, we will be given eternal life because of what you've paid on the cross and the remedy that you've provided for us. And so we're, we're grateful to you, God, as we take this bread and take this cup. And we, we pray, Lord, we, we would continue to be grateful as we go through our week this week. We would understand the grace that we've been given, the, the, the Spirit's power that we've been given, and that we would walk, not, not like human beings depending on human power, but like children of God filled with your spirit that are walking in, in your grace and in your power, demonstrating and proclaiming the gospel. And we pray your blessing over this time, over this bread, over this cup, Lord, and over our time together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning,